There's something new and exciting in the Betty Crocker kitchens. And here's Betty Crocker herself. And this is what we're so excited about, my new marble cake mix. Betty freaking Crocker, the housewife to end all housewives. But in a way no housewife had ever done before. Betty was a pioneer for women across America in a time where a woman's place was in homemaking, whether she was good at it or not. But there's a bigger story behind the apron, and it doesn't take long before we have to come to terms with the fact that the woman behind that delicious devil's chocolate cake mix isn't who we thought they were. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Oh, no, I already asked. Welcome back to Learning Things. I'm actually quite pleasantly relieved to be recording this episode today because for the past two weeks of these episodes, I've left it till the day before to write the episode, record it, produce it, and then release it. So the fact that we're doing Betty Crocker today and her beautiful fraudulent history is just a really nice change from last week's episode on UFOs. But if you haven't listened to that one already, go back and listen to it because it's fun and funky and very interesting. And we talk about space a little bit, which is terrifying. But anyway, welcome back to Learning Things. This episode is available as a YouTube video or a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. So pick your poison and let's learn about Betty Crocker. I loved baking as a kid. I was a big baker. I just think baking such a nice wholesome way to spend a couple of hours. I don't know why. And I have horrific attention to detail. It's not there. I don't have any. I've tried looking for it and it wasn't in all the usual places. So I've just come to peace with the fact that I don't have attention to detail. We're yet to see whether or not that will fare me well in this life. But so far I've been all right. But that's that's something that I, I feel like you often need when you're going to be a baker or a good one. Let's change it to a good baker. Whether or not the taste of your food is indeed edible and if not enjoyable as a bonus, you have to have some form of attention to detail. I've got none of it, as we've discussed. So you know that phrase, measure with love? I take that quite literally when I'm baking. When I was a kid and I wasn't baking with mum, like when I first started to make stuff myself, I started like a lot of people with a cake mix, with a Betty Crocker cake mix. My favorite was the triple fudge brownie one. I still make them because they're just like guaranteed good and they're so easy. That's something that I love about Betty Crocker cake mixes. They're just so easy to whip something together in like 20 minutes, put it in the oven, forget about it for another 20, come back and you've got this decadent tray of brownies with or without a special substance within them. She has definitely been a part of my formative years in the kitchen and she will continue to play a role in my kitchen because sometimes I don't have two hours to make something and I just need to whip something together. And that's what we love Betty Crocker for. Alas, she's not real. So let's get into it. I'm also wearing my apron today. Um, it's a weird one. If you're on audio, it's got like watermelons on the top part and then it comes out into this like little pink skirt. I'm not entirely sure how good this apron actually is because also it's like I have a small waist, but where this apron sits across your torso is like smaller than your torso. So like 
You are allowed to spill shit so long as it isn't on the outer areas of your ribs and or hips. So we start our journey all the way back in the late 1800s. Life was starting to get very fast paced. Population growth was getting pretty insane. There was mass transit. People had, you know, subways, cable cars, trains. There was noise. There was traffic. There was air pollution. There were skyscrapers that were starting to fill the skyline. Women were becoming busier and a little bit more accomplished. But one thing remained their priority. Whether or not that priority was set by men, it was homemaking. Women took ultimate pride in homemaking, in their cooking, their cleaning, the way they presented themselves and their house, the food they put on the dinner table, everything about their life (laughs) genuinely did kind of come down to how they were as a homemaker. Their worth was determined by that, which is psycho and I'm so glad we don't do that anymore because I'm really bad at scrubbing showers. Seeing as this episode is about homemaking, essentially, I feel like it's a fitting place to discuss cleaning showers is awful. It's abysmal. I hate it. Do you agree? I saw an ad for like a, I'm pretty sure it was like a drop ship thing, but it was like an attachment for a drill, like a construction drill that you could put on the end of it. And it was like a sponge and or like a a rough brush that you could use and the drill would power it to like clean things. And I was, dude, I was sold. I got like 30 seconds into this like 45 second long social media ad. You know the ones, you know the ones I'm talking about. And I was like, okay, I'm listening. Give me a link. And I was just about to click the link. And I decided for some weird reason to look at the comments. And like every single person was like, this shit is awful. This won't work. Like everyone was shitting on it. And I was like, oh, Okay, I suppose I can't use power tools to clean my shower. But anyway, oh, I just have my fucking straightener beep. I'll be back. (laughs) Thank God for those beeps that your straightener makes if you've left it on for too long. Because honestly, mine would still be on from the time I used it in 2018 if it wasn't for that beep. So there was a company called Washburn Crosby. And if I refer to them as General Mills, it's because they ended up becoming General Mills. So whenever I say Washburn, Crosby, or General Mills, same shit, different stink, same company. They just rebranded. And they're still around today. But they were basically the go-to company to get your baking needs, like flour and things like that. And I specifically mean like baking flour. When I first heard someone talking about this kind of story, it was on a podcast as well. And the whole time they're talking about like Washburn, Crosby's flour packets. And I'm like, Are they seeds? So because a woman's main hmm, job, you could call it unpaid, uh, was homemaking, they took serious pride in the food that they made. Like it was kind of this culture of you've got one job and if you don't do it perfectly, then people are going to judge you. Like genuinely, if your apple pie wasn't up to scratch or it wasn't as good as Sandra's down the road, you would be judged for it, which is so funny to me because like I recently served a soup at like, it wasn't really a dinner party, but people were at my house and I served them dinner. So let's call it a dinner party. And the next day, my friend asked me for that recipe and I was like, oh my God, yes, slay me. I impressed people. Like they enjoyed my food. So like 
you know what I mean. If you've ever cooked for people and they enjoy your food and you're like, oh, fantastic. Like my boyfriend isn't just making stuff up to keep me happy. He actually enjoys my food. So like you can understand the pride that you would get if you served food and your neighbors or friends or your husband's colleagues would really enjoy it. Like you get this sense of pride, like go me. Except if it wasn't good and like, let's say my soup was awful the friend I had over for dinner, shout out Emma, that's two shout outs in one season. <laughs> Give yourself a pat on the back, Emma. So like, you know, she might go to her husband and be like, that was interesting. And he might be like, yeah, wasn't a huge fan of that. And then like that would set the tone for how they saw that woman and her family based on this soup or apple pie or casserole or whatever. If they didn't do it perfectly or they didn't do it well, they would honestly be seen of as like not doing their job correctly. And I've, look, I've done jobs poorly and I was getting paid for them. So like, can you imagine if you're told you're not doing your job correctly and you're not even getting paid for it? Well, that was the culture. So in any possible scenario, women were always trying to impress people with like what they put on the dinner table, even if it was just their husband sitting down on a Tuesday night or whatever they'd serve to impress at a dinner party. They wanted people to hold them in high esteem and the only way they could prove themselves was in homemaking. But something that women rarely did back then was help each other out. So you know how I said before that my friend asked me for the recipe for this soup. It's an Italian potato and bacon soup. It's fucking mint, by the way. Well, they wouldn't do that back then. It's such a casual discussion for us these days to be like, hey, I absolutely loved that, I don't know, the lasagna you made last week. Would I be able to get the recipe? And so long as it isn't some prized family recipe that you've got your mitts on, which I do have with spaghetti bolognese, don't ask me for that one. Then like, yeah, we're going to give it to each other. Back then, they didn't. I think it was based on this culture of you've got one job. I'm doing this job as well. I can't help you with your version of it. Like you can do it kind of thing. You know, when you're in primary school and like you didn't do your homework and you'd want to like just quickly copy the answers from someone and you'd get that kid who like maybe it was your friend and out of nowhere, they'd be like, no, you can't. Sorry. First of all, that was me. I don't know why. I can't tell you why, but I didn't like sharing my homework. It's not because I didn't want to get in trouble. Like that would make it better. If I just didn't want to get in trouble, that's the, and that's the reason why I didn't give my homework out. I think I would feel better about myself if that were the case. That wasn't the case. I just didn't want to give my homework to other people. I don't know. I'm like, I did it. If I managed to sit down for an hour and do this, then like, why shouldn't you? Sorry. Anyway, I am working on bettering myself, so please don't let that be an example for how you see me. Um, you know, I'm growing as a person. I am going to give that recipe to my friend. But yeah, back then they didn't do that. They wouldn't just like stand on the fence in between their two houses and have a little chit chat about like this special apple pie or like maybe they had a casserole and they were like, oh, you got to try it. It just wasn't the culture. Women felt exceptional shame for like asking for help in this area of their life because culture had taught them that it's like, you've got one job, babe. Like, come on, you can whip a casserole together. And if you can't, oh, that's unfortunate, isn't it? So this ultimately led to a lot of women who like weren't the Brie Hodge of Wisteria Lane. Sorry, side note, I've been watching Desperate Housewives for the last couple of months. Amazing show. I absolutely love it. I love Brie Hodge. I want to be her. She's basically like a 1950s housewife, but in like the early 2000s, and she does it so well. Love you, Brie. Love you, Brie Hodge. So like not everyone was the Brie Hodge of Wisteria Lane, and they didn't necessarily know 
how to cook, you know? It was seen as like a sign of weakness to ask for help in like the kitchen. It just wasn't something they did. I hope I've gotten that in your head enough because I feel like I've said the same sentence 15,000 times, but in a different way. Now, in these Washburn Crosby flower packets, sometimes they would put these recipe cards into these packets of flour, and these were genuinely a huge hit. And remembering this wasn't a time where you could just like Google a quick recipe. I can't tell you the amount of times I've gone into taste.com and searched 10 minutes vodka pasta and been given 25 different versions of the same pasta that I can then filter through to work out which one I want to do. Often it's based on pictures. Why do we do that as humans? Like there could be one that is undoubtedly the best vodka pasta you've ever tasted in your life. But if it doesn't have a good photo, if the lighting isn't right, if I don't like the bowl it's in, I'll pick a different one. That's my problem. Wow, I've got some work to do on myself. So they couldn't do that. They didn't have taste.com, doll. They couldn't just look for a recipe. And the only recipes that they had were like scribbled in like a home little cookbook notebook that they made themselves. Maybe the recipes were passed down from generations or maybe they were from you know, a one cookbook that they happened to own. Because again, cookbooks weren't like they are today. You couldn't just like walk into Target, go to the book section and look at 35 different options for the same like quick and easy meals with Donna Hay. Donna Hay wasn't around, babe. The cookbooks were also like really classist. So the titles of the cookbook and the way that they were presented in terms of like the packaging would directly relate to who they were aimed at in terms of classes. So, for example, there was plain cookery for the working classes or 15-cent dinners for working men's families. Whereas if you were upper class and you were looking for a cookbook, the title of your cookbooks would be... Now, I can't remember this off by heart because it's fucking French and I don't speak it. Sue me. Les Super de la Cour or La Cuisinière Bourgeois. Is it bourgeois? Bourgeoisie. I don't know. Doesn't matter, does it? And this was done for a couple of reasons. It wasn't necessarily that the plain cookery book, for example, had like 15-minute recipes. The recipes still probably took like eight hours to make. Like they were home all day, just like cooking, cleaning, keeping their house in order, doing the things. And so they could spend eight hours making dinner. So it wasn't that those recipes were like necessarily easier. They just contained ingredients that were more accessible for people on a lower budget. Whereas the cookbooks for the wealthy often listed ingredients that were more like harder to come by and more expensive. So because they had access to it, it just opened a world of like more recipes they could use. That was the main difference. But it's still funny to me that cookbooks back then were like so classist because I suppose nowadays the only ingredients that are like particularly out of reach are like very expensive cuts of beef or like wasabi. Like the wasabi we see in supermarkets isn't real wasabi. Like, real wasabi costs a shit ton. Let's see. Real wasabi cost. In Japan, if you buy real wasabi, it costs $250 for a kilo in US dollars. We just get, like, a very watered-down version of it with, like, horseradish and shit. I don't know. I'm not a wasabi expert, guys. I'm a Betty Crocker expert. Let's get back to it. So coming back to General Mills, the fact that they would have these little recipe cards in the flower packets at random was such a game-changer. And women across the country just fucking loved it because they were like holy shit free recipe like they just open their flour they get a recipe for an apple pie a special like bread gingerbread ginger cake whatever it was 
it was a hit. Now, one day, completely unrelated to these recipe cards, Washburn Crosby put out this competition. Now, they had a competition. They put it in the Saturday Evening Post, which is just an old newspaper. And the competition was just a puzzle. And you would complete the puzzle and then send it in and you might win this special pin cushion. And so all these women were like completing the puzzles and then sending them in, except they were accompanying all of these entries to this fucking puzzle with questions to do with recipes that had been put in the flower packets because previously they had no way to ask a question about it. There wasn't really like a postage address for the company for this matter. So I suppose they were like, okay, well, I'm entering the competition. I'm just going to quickly ask about this apple pie and why my cake didn't rise or how do I get fluffy pancake? Like things like that. Like women were just desperately seeking some help because as we said before, they weren't asking each other because that just wasn't the culture. Some women would even write in being like, oh my God, my husband loved that casserole recipe. Please, do you have any like it? So when the letters started coming in, Washburn Crosby did have like an advertising and marketing department that would occasionally answer questions about stuff, but they got so little of them that it it wasn't really a big deal. Like they could quickly write something that kind of made sense. They didn't really put that much effort into it. But when these entries for this puzzle were coming in, there were so many letters and these women had so many questions and they seemed like genuinely desperate. The, the company were like, okay, we're going like, to have to start writing back to these people. So Gold Medal Flower, this flower subsidiary, had no way of anticipating how many letters that they would get. And they ended up getting thousands. This guy named Samuel Gale, he was the department manager of the company. He would try to write back as many as he could with an all-male staff. They would consult women at the company and try to like get an answer to some of the questions. And then they would write it to send back to these women. They eventually had to hire an entire staff of people who were directly responsible for replying to these letters to these women across America who were just feeling fucking lost and didn't know who to ask about whether or not they could use self-raising or plain flour with this specific type of bread. So when they started responding to these letters, they were individual personal letters. Like it wasn't just some mass letter that was sent out to all these people. Like they were directly addressing these people, these women with their concerns and answering their questions and personally to them, except there was something missing. Samuel Gale did not want to sign the letters off as himself because he kind of worked out that women didn't want to get cooking advice from a man, particularly back then. It just wasn't their place where it was a woman's place kind of thing. And so he was like, okay, women aren't going to trust this. But it meant he had to be able to sign it off as a woman. And so they were like, who, who, how, who can we, how can we sign off these letters in a way that these women are going to trust the advice and potentially come back for more? So they got together and they studied thousands of names used by women in America. And they came up with Betty as the first name. They thought it sounded cheery and safe and friendly. And it ends in a smile, you know, Betty, Betty. Kind of like Lucy. And as for Crocker, it apparently came from a recently retired director of Washburn Crosby. Um, his name was William G. Crocker. But then another source told me that Crocker came from the founder of the company, Cadwallader Crocker. Um, I don't know which one is true. I thought I'd give you both options and you can fight amongst yourselves to work out the correct answer because I don't care. So once they had the name, Samuel Gale invited all of the female employees at Washburn Crosby to create a signature for this Betty Crocker. 
They needed a signature to sign off all of these letters and they wanted it to be authentic. So they got all of the women at Washburn Crosby to create one and submit it. And they would maybe win a prize. I actually don't know if they won anything, which is kind of crazy because the signature that was used ended up being used like forever. Like it's still used on a lot of Betty Crocker branding. So most, if not every woman in the company, scribbled their own version of this Betty Crocker signature. And the winning signature was penned by a secretary at the company named Florence Lindeberg. And then her signature that she created was used to sign off every single letter that went out to all these women in America. So once they had this like identity, it became so popular because a lot of women were starting to kind of hint to each other that there was someone who could help, like a kitchen confidant kind of thing, like someone you could just discreetly ask a question about without anyone around you knowing that you don't know how to cook a fucking apple pie. They'd just share it with each other and be like, oh, you could just ask Betty. Like, Betty will write you back. And women got a huge sense of pride when they received this letter back from Betty. Ms. Crocker has helped me. Ms. Crocker gave me all the answers. And so they'd pass that along to their friends and be like, hey, you know, if you get stuck, you can ask Betty. She was particularly helpful during wartime. Women would be reaching out, asking how they could make their ingredients go further because obviously women were rationing, men were away at wars, they did not have enough food to go around. And so they needed a way to creatively make their ingredients go further. And so that was something that Betty helped with initially as well. And then the Betty Crocker cookbook of all-purpose baking was actually released during wartime as a direct solution for women to learn how to make their ingredients go further in a time of rationing. And it wasn't just how to make your food go further. It was like how to still make good food in a time where we are cutting back and we can't afford what we normally can. So the women of America had absolutely no reason to believe that Betty Crocker wasn't real. And so they really trusted her and she became this huge beacon of help for so many women in America. I read a stat that said by a certain year in the 50s, 93% of women in America knew who Betty Crocker was or like was familiar with her, which is so cool, even if she was just marketing. Because there were so many letters coming in, and I'm not kidding, there were like 4,000 letters a day coming in to Ms. Crocker, and she was allegedly getting between four and five marriage proposals each day as well, so slay Betty. They realized, they were like, this is, just doesn't make sense anymore. Feasibly, it can't make sense for them anymore. Because remember, they did have an entire floor worth of people whose sole job each day was just to reply to these letters. And while the letters definitely did help with the brand and like Washburn Crosby marketing identity as like this trustworthy company, there were no direct sales associated with these letters going back. So Betty went from signing letters to being the host of her very first and America's very first cooking radio show. It was called the Betty Crocker Cooking School of the Air. It was first aired in the Minneapolis radio station called WCCO, but it became so popular that it ended up being taken nationwide by NBC. You're not an idiot. I assume you know what this show would have been based on the title. It was a show where women all across the country would sit down with this notepad and pen and literally take notes of everything they would hear that they might be interested in in the show. Because it wasn't just cooking, it was like homemaking, cleaning, sewing, all of that. The Betty Crocker Service Program, a regular feature of General Mills. Friends, the leader of this band of gallant home front women is Betty Crocker. The other thing that this show did was because they stopped doing the letters, 
It was a way for them to continue answering the questions that were coming through, but without having to like physically write back to all of these people. At this point of getting like 4,000 letters a day, you can imagine they were getting like hundreds of the same question just asked over and over again. So Betty would, well, Betty in quotation marks, would take the most popular questions that were asked and answer them on the show. And that was the way that a lot of women could get their questions answered still. And there's another point here to be made that like that is actually so ingenious of them to, to make that switch because not only were they then saving a lot of money from hiring all these people to reply to the letters, but it also fit with this real world explanation, like with Betty being a real person in quotation marks. A real woman couldn't be this like very accomplished homemaker and cook and home economics woman while also replying to 4,000 letters each day and signing them by hand and sending them off to the post office. Can you imagine the sack on her back full of those letters? Oh my God, her poor wrist, dude. So that made sense to women because they were like, oh, she's just gotten so popular that she needs a radio show now. Of course, she's not replying to the letters. Fucking ingenious from them. As for the job of who was going to be the voice of Betty Crocker, it went to this woman named Marjorie Husted. Husted? Look, I need you to help me with this one. It's H-U-S-T-E-D. Husted? 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 I don't know. I think it's Husted. She was a home economist and she wrote and hosted the show. She was very impressive and she was perfect for the role. She was an accomplished woman in homely duties. She went to university and she studied home economics. She also taught cooking schools across the country through the Gold Medal Flower Company. She was also the head of, you know, the room of 50 writers that were writing back as Betty Crocker every day to all these women in America. Also with this woman named Jeanette Kelly. I saw her name mentioned as well. And to risk being yelled at for getting the facts. Oh my God, it seems a lot of people in my neighborhood are either injured or dead because the amount of sirens I have heard in the past 20 minutes of recording is insanity. Yeah, um, Marjorie became this huge representation and like just a general embodiment of this Betty Crocker woman. She was the first voice of it. It is worth noting there were a couple of other women who ended up playing this role as well, but she was the first and she did a lot to kind of solidify and create this brand of Brady, Brady, Brady Crocker. Brady Cocker is what I'm really trying to say here. Also, when they had stakeholders come to Washburn Crosby or General Mills, I'm not sure when they changed the name, she would literally be introduced as Betty Crocker. Like she wasn't even introduced as herself. She was introduced as Betty Crocker, a fictional woman. But anyway. Hello, everybody. On behalf of General Mills and its many and varied services, a warm welcome to our Betty Crocker kitchens. So in 1951, when television was really solidifying itself in American culture, they hired a woman called Adelaide Hawley to play the very first live-action Betty Crocker. She was the first of many to play the role, and she's always, she as in Betty, has always had a really consistent look. She's like this white woman with brunette hair, a short, practical, yet feminine hairstyle. She would always have a white shirt and like a red blazer or sweater or something. And when she was first kind of visualized on paper, she was drawn with a slight resemblance to the former First Lady Jackie Kennedy. And then later on in 1996, they changed her skin tone to like more of an olive skin tone so that they could see if she could transcend to represent many other ethnicities, not just white women. Now, Washburn Crosby at this point had created one of the 
cleverest, is that a word? Who cares? Marketing campaigns ever. They had successfully created a woman who was not only trusted and adored by women all over America, but she was fictional and no one knew. They genuinely thought she was a real person, like she was getting marriage proposals. And also back then, even though men were, you know, like the saying, the man of the house, like they ran the household, women were in charge of most of the family's finances, like home economics. And so if you wanted to sell a product, you had to win in the hearts of the American women because they were the ones at the end of the day pulling out the checkbook to write a number on it for a product or an ingredient or a you know, food. You know, they were the ones that were making decisions in these types of things. So if you could win the hearts of the American women, your product would likely succeed. And they, in short, had fucking nailed it. Honey, when was the last time you baked a cake? Last week, dear. Oh, I didn't see any cake around here. It wasn't for you, dear. My club had a charity auction. Hmm? No, my cake sold for five dollars. Oh, how'd you manage that? With Betty Crocker's new honey spice cake mix. So the Betty Crocker labeled products, you know, the ones that we see today, they were originally launched in 1941. And the first one was for a noodle soup recipe. But then in 1947, her famous cake mix arrived. So the cake mix, in my opinion, is like one of the most fascinating parts of this whole story. And it still rings true today. So everything I'm about to say now is basically how cake mixes still work today. So the cake mix was dehydrated blended molasses. Stay with me. There was dehydrated flour, sugar, eggs, milk, other ingredients, the things you need to make a cake with. So the mix, when women would buy it, only required water and then some baking to be put in the oven to cook. But this was such a sharp turn for women at the time who were used to spending hours and hours baking or cooking that they were like, this can't be right. So it didn't sit right with them. So they'd still add eggs anyway, or they'd still add milk, assuming that like it, it needs these ingredients, not realizing that the dehydrated egg and milk and dairy products were in there and they were fine and they were safe and all you needed to do was add water. They would still add eggs because they're like, I've got to do something here. And they'd fuck up the ingredients. So the sales would go down. So General Mills, Washburn Crosby, were like, okay, we're going to change something here. And so they did a little bit of manipulation. They just took out the dehydrated egg from the dehydrated, you know, cake mix ingredient part. And they made it a requirement for the steps, the cooking procedure to add, you know, one fresh egg or whatever. And sales went up because all of a sudden women were like, oh, it requires some of my skill. I'll get around this. And that's still the case today. The only reason why we need to add an egg or milk or something is just because housewives in the late 40s were like feeling inadequate, feeling like their skills weren't going to use. That's why on a lot of cake mixes these days, there's an option. It's like either two eggs and some butter and milk or water and vegetable oil like you can literally just use oil to do it though don't use peanut oil i thought that would go down well i made brownies once with a betty crocker cake mix used peanut oil even though it called for vegetable oil this was the day i learned that not all oils are the same <laughs> because that shit came out awfully and like also what do you mean like peanut oil how could that go badly in like a brownie mixture it's peanuts I was so, so very, very wrong. 
don't add peanut oil to your cake mixes. Stick to the vegetable oil. And then another kind of funny side note to give you a perspective on how different the selling point back then was for women. The idea of it being easy to prepare was the last thing that they would show on the box. Like it wasn't even advertised on the packaging that the preparation was easy because they didn't want women to think that they would have nothing to do. This was the only purpose of a woman back then to be a homemaker. So like if they were felt redundant in a certain aspect of that life, they probably weren't going to go with that option. So all of the packaging would have this like really decadent frosting on these cakes or like it would make it seem like there's a lot of work involved, even though that work isn't involved in the actual making of the cake. I just find that really fascinating that like there's so much social manipulation in everything that we buy and it always has been. I'm just surprised that we're still doing it today. Like why wouldn't we just change? Why wouldn't Betty Crocker just come out and be like, hi, so... The cake mix, like, just literally tell you what I've just told you and be like, so from now on, just add water to the mix and you'll be fine. Because nowadays, like, ease of use is one of the number one reasons why people will buy a product or buy a a specific, like, meal or something. Like, we have frozen ready-made meals in our freezers in the supermarkets that go for, like, 15 metres of the aisle. Like, we don't give a fuck anymore. We want that ease of preparation. But back then... It would have affected their sales had they have said, this is easy to make. Which is just fascinating. But the Betty Crocker's Picture Cookbook was released in 1950 and it is a bestseller. It is still a bestseller today. It's been rebranded as the Betty Crocker Cookbook. But like five years before that, in 1945, Fortune magazine labelled Betty Crocker as the second most popular woman in America, second to Eleanor Roosevelt, which is so funny because she wasn't real, but they didn't know that at the time. Some information got leaked, something got out, and someone finally found out that Betty wasn't real. And funnily enough, in the same year as Fortune labeling her as the second most popular woman in America, they also released a piece outing her as this, like, fake and a fraud. And so the people of America were like, no, my Betty, she's real, she's not fake. A lot of people didn't actually believe it for a while. They were like, no, she's real. I actually spoke to her. I actually have a letter from her in my drawer. Do you want to see it? She signed it. She's real. So it didn't really affect them that much. And I don't think it really has since. Like, not many people know that Betty Crocker isn't or wasn't a real person. I assumed she was. I just, like, never thought about it as a kid, I suppose, because when I was picking up these cake mixes, it was just, like, a brand name to me. But if you would ask me who Betty Crocker was, I would have assumed she was just, like, the original creator of all the recipes that they turned into cake mixes. I don't know. That would have made sense to me. And in terms of fictional characters being used as a marketing technique, Santa's kind of the same. That's another story for another day. So there we go. That is the story of Betty Crocker. I said in the beginning, but I love Betty Crocker cake mixes. They're just so easy. I think they make baking really accessible for people, particularly when you're learning for kids as well, because it's like there's you really, really have to struggle to fuck it up. And like, as I said before, I do not have attention to detail. So if I can do it, no wonder seven-year-olds can do it. Also, speaking of the number seven, they cost like seven bucks. It just makes it really accessible. Apart from that being a story of, you know, marketing genius by a multi-million, billion dollar company, General Mills, we know them, we love them. 
I think it is also just a really interesting story of how culture was for women back in the back in the 40s and 50s and you know 60s as well. It's just really interesting to me to think that you can't talk to someone about like cooking or like I'm trying to think of something that is similar like like something we don't talk to each other about like we keep private if it's like a shortcoming or something. Maybe like Facetune. Like I know a lot of people who use Facetune but won't tell anyone that they're using Facetune, you know? Like even if they ask, they'll be like, "What? No." So like I, maybe that's a similar comparison to like not telling people the secret ingredient to your apple pie. That sounds like a euphemism. Do you want to make it a euphemism? I'll tell you the secret ingredient to my apple pie. But as always, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you give the video a thumbs up, a podcast review on your app of choice, and I will see you guys next week. Adios, amigos. <laughs>